This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. My name's Will. I'm a deacon here and also the youth and college pastor. It's good to be with you this morning. The church is polarized, so they say. More influenced by worldly politics and trends than by the teachings of Jesus, with factions rising up on both progressive and conservative ends of the church. Progressive and, and conservative churches not just separated from one another, but these ends within dividing the same, you know, dividing single churches like ours into smaller and smaller subsets of like-minded people. And this dream of the church as a diverse worshiping community that once felt so right and possible and good often feels fraught with tension and difficulty. It feels like the center just can't hold. The church has so many different people with so many different perspectives and so many different things, and these perspectives are in conflict often with one another. They clash. They don't fit. And this whole situation raises the question, is it even possible? Is it even possible for a church to exist centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ in these times that we live in? Or would we all be better off splitting into separate communities, gathered with people who think like us, talk like us, raise their families like us, and so on? If you read, if you read any you know, news article about the church in the United States, you're probably going to read a narrative just like that one, talking about polarization and division. But would it surprise you this morning if I were to say that I'm not actually trying to describe the church in the United States with that long description, that I'm actually trying to describe the church as she existed in another time and another place. Would it surprise you this morning if that description of a divided church or a church that is being, that is threatened with division, rather, if that church is none other than the church of the New Testament, the early church, a diverse, multi-ethnic community that is plagued with polarization and threats of division. A church of Jew and Gentile, people from vastly divergent backgrounds, trying to figure out how do we stay together when so much pulls us apart. That's the context of the early church. That's the context that John is writing to when he writes his gospel, and he reminds the church of these simple words, love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. Those words to us can often sound kind of like sappy and sentimental, like they belong on a Hallmark card. But these are words that are written to a church in crisis, crisis that you read about through the pages of the New Testament. How do we stay together when there's so much pulling us apart? And the answer that Jesus gives is love. Love, his own love, is the only means by which the unity of the church is revealed to the world. And so this morning, I want us to think about Christ's call to us to love one another, not just as a sappy, kind of sentimental thing, but as profound and profoundly challenging words written to a church that's in a situation more dire than any that we're currently facing in the United States.
So I want to talk about three things that love is in these passages in Leviticus and John that speak to us today. And so I encourage you, if you have Bibles, pew Bibles, open up to Leviticus chapter 19. And you can also put a finger there in John chapter 13. Leviticus 19 and John chapter 13. So the first thing that we see in these passages is that love is imitative. Love is imitative. We love as we learn to love. From those who loved us. We love by imitating those who loved us. Of course, you can see that with with small children, right? I mean, so my my daughter is is two years old, and she's she's just beginning to play with little baby dolls, and she loves those dolls like we love her. I mean, not all the time. Sometimes she throws the dolls against the wall, and and we've never done that to to her or to her brother. But um, other times... Other times, she'll pretend like, you know, the dolls are sleepy and the babies need to go to sleep. And so my two-year-old daughter will put a, a pillow on her lap. She'll put the baby on the pillow and she'll start singing her version of the same lullaby that we sing to her when she's going to bed, that my wife sings to her, which is the same lullaby that my daughter's grandmother sang to my wife when she was a baby, which is the same lullaby that, that my wife's mother had sung to her by my wife's grandmother. I mean, you, you get it. There's a lot of mothers and generations going on here, but you get it. This is four generations, all loving in the same way, singing the same song that was sung over them. We learn to love through imitation, and the same feature is at work in these passages. So you see in Leviticus 19, this series of ethical commands you know, kind of all walks of life represented here. You've got, you know, commands about the poor and the sojourner, commands for how to conduct business affairs, commands for how we're to to treat the the, the disabled, uh, commands for how our court systems should operate. But look at how these commands begun, or began. Leviticus 19, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying... Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That our love of neighbor, that all of these commands build up to. You know, Paul says in Galatians 5 that the whole law is summed up in this one statement to love your neighbor as yourself. All of these ethical commands represent the holiness of God, that we're imitating the holiness of God and His love for the people around us when we love our neighbor. And this is actually something that's, that's somewhat unique to Israel in the ancient world. See, lots of religions at the time had laws about holiness, how you're to offer, you know, right sacrifices, right worship of the gods. And lots of those same religions had laws about how you're to treat other people. But the people of Israel were the only ones for whom those two things were connected. That holiness is not just a matter of your worship of God, but holiness is a matter of how you treat others around you. That was unique to the people of Israel and to the Bible. And so we flip over to to John chapter 13. Jesus says... Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, 
that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Love is imitative. When we love one another, we are imitating the God who first loved us. And so we might ask about John chapter 13, what's so new about this commandment? Why does Jesus say, a new commandment I give to you? If we have this this verse in Leviticus 19 about love your neighbor as yourself, and what's new is this, that there is someone new to imitate. What's new is that they've been given a new model, Jesus Christ, in his daily, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute, self-offering, his gift of himself for his disciples. What's new is that the law, all of these words and commands, have been summed up and fulfilled in the flesh and blood person of Jesus Christ. What's new is that they have a new model to imitate, to follow. Love is imitative, and God calls us to love in the way that he has first loved us. So we'll move to our our second point. That, that love in this context, especially Leviticus 19, we see this. Love in this context is not based on feeling or our choice, but is actually based on our obligation to one another. Love is not about a feeling. It's, it's based on our obligation to each other. So let's turn to Leviticus 19. Because I know when you guys were walking in this morning, you said, you know, we don't preach on Leviticus enough. <laughs> Today is your day. It is true, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Maybe next summer we'll do a sermon series on Leviticus. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Leviticus 19. You can hold Matt to that. I give you permission. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 19. Uh, Look at chapter 19, verse 15. Talking about the courts. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You see what the law is doing there? The law is counteracting our natural tendency to be partial and preferential towards one group or another. And he's saying in the courts, it cannot be like this. You can't be partial to the poor in solidarity with them. You can't be partial to the great in deference to them. But, but doing righteousness means operating fairly to both in the legal system. It's counteracting our own, what might be our own internal feelings and calling us to our obligation to do justice. Okay, now look at verse 9. Talking about our obligation to the poor, to the sojourner. When you reap the harvest of your land, talking to landowners here, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. You need to leave some of the fruit on the ground, some of the fruit at the edges. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. I mean, isn't this remarkable? that there is this provision made in the law of Israel, this provision made for the protection of those who have no land, for the protection and provision of the poor, of widows and orphans, of the sojourner. And so God is saying to his people that business, 
and a profit margin cannot be your only bottom line. That in your business, you have to remember the poor. This isn't an issue, this isn't you know, kind of an issue of charity. What you might like to do with these extra monies that you have, who you might like to give those to, but this is an obligation from the very beginning. As you do your business, you have an obligation to the poor to provide for them as well. And here again is something that is unique to Israel. See, lots of, lots of ancient religions had these provisions for the poor amongst a group of people. But what made Israel unique was this, that they had the same provisions for the sojourner, for the foreigner, for the immigrant, for the outsider. That the people of Israel were called to care for the people who were not their people who happened to be in their midst. And why was that? We see in Deuteronomy chapter 10 the answer. Deuteronomy 10 says, Love the sojourners, for you were sojourners yourselves in the land of Egypt. Again, love is imitative. The Lord loves the sojourner, and so also the people of Israel are called to love the sojourner. And in Deuteronomy, what does that love look like? Not merely a, a feeling of affection, but it looks like hospitality, providing food and shelter for those who are not your people, for those you might not feel an obligation for, yet you do have that obligation. This is the call of love. And what good preparation all of this was for the church the early church, because I, as I alluded to at the beginning of this sermon, the early church was full of outsiders. What began as a, as, you know, a small Jewish you know, subset of believers in Jesus as the Messiah, you know, Jewish believers who shared a familiar history and language and, and outlook on life, that quickly became a much larger and, and more diverse and mixed group of people from widely different backgrounds. And this caused tension and difficulty. If you read the New Testament, this tension is behind so much of what's written there. Read Romans, read Galatians. This isn't just theology that Paul is writing, but this is practical theology. He's trying to communicate to these churches, how do you stay together? How do you stay together when your intuitions about right and wrong are so vastly different? What is the center that could possibly hold this community together. And these disagreements, it wasn't over like, you know, your preference in, in worship songs, right, for the early church. I mean, this was over like idolatry. And what some members of the church were doing felt deeply wrong to others, and they had to wrestle that through with the leadership of the church. What is the call of Christ to us as a diverse body? What is gospel faithfulness look like for us. That's the context that John was speaking to, reminding them of the words of Jesus. Love one another just as I have loved you, so also you should love one another. You think about these 12 disciples. They didn't all know each other before Jesus called them. They weren't like a group of 12 friends that Jesus saw at the mall and said, hey, 
hey, I was actually looking for 12 people. It's gonna represent the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, don't worry about it. I'll explain it all later, but come follow me. That's not what he did. But he's selecting these 12 somewhat random people. They don't know why they're all gathered, except this, that Jesus chose them. And the same is true in the church. I mean, you look around at this community. This isn't exactly the community that you would in normal circumstances, choose to spend every Sunday morning with, right? This is kind of a random group of people with a lot of differing perspectives coming from a lot of different places. You think about your res group. There might be somebody in your res group that you think, you know what? I wouldn't have chosen for that person to be here. But nevertheless, they are. Love isn't based on our feeling, our choice of who to surround ourselves with, but it's our obligation to our neighbor, especially our obligation to the people that the Lord Jesus has chosen to put in our lives in the church. That's how we all got here. Strangers to each other, call, being called to love one another as Christ has loved us. And so finally, if, if these things are true, that, that love is, is imitative, that it's not based on feeling, but it's our obligation to our neighbor, if these things are true, then love is also invitational. Love is an invitation. The call to love, especially to love those who are difficult to love, is an invitation to receive the love that God has for us. And often, when we struggle to love others for one reason or another, it's because we've struggled to internalize the love that Jesus has for us. And so I can, you know, give you here an example from my own life, that, that sometimes I can be a very critical person in my thoughts towards others. Sometimes I can be a very critical person. I don't mean like, thinking through ideas and asking hard questions. I mean like having a, a critical spirit, that there's just part of me that loves to think about how wrong and boneheaded certain other people are. There's a, you know, there's this, can anybody relate to this? There's just part of me that just loves to think about and talk about the mistakes of other people and what I would do if I were in their shoes and what they would do if they had a brain, okay? <laughs> And it feels so right. It feels so right to think about how others are wrong until, until I make a boneheaded mistake. And then all of that criticism that just so freely flowed out from me turns around and comes back. And all of a sudden, I just feel ashamed. How could I have made that mistake? How did I not see that coming? How could I be so thick-headed? Oh, that criticism that felt so good going out feels terrible coming back in. And so what's the invitation? The invitation when I'm tempted to be critical of others is to remember the mercy of God for me. When I'm tempted to be critical of others, the invitation is to remember God's mercy towards me, especially in the midst of my mistakes, that, praise God, He does not look at me in the harsh way that I sometimes look at others. 
that, praise God, he is merciful toward me in my weakness, that he's honest with me about my faults, but he is also patient with me. If he were to tell me every one of my faults, every single one of them, I would crumble. But he's patient with me. He's patient with me. He doesn't withhold his love until I figure things out. He offers forgiveness, even in the midst of my mistakes. I found it very difficult to just turn off that critical part of my brain. But where I've had, like, some breakthrough has been experiencing the mercy of God for me in the midst of my mistakes and then trying to extend that mercy to others. Remembering the mercy of God for me right in the midst of my sin, my foolishness, and remembering I ought to be merciful to others like this too. The same goes for, for anything, any, any way that you struggle to love somebody else especially somebody who's difficult for you. You know, patience. You struggle with being patient with somebody, remembering the patience of God towards you. You struggle with generosity, giving of your limited resources, remembering the generosity of God towards you. Struggle with forgiveness. I mean, is there anything harder than forgiving someone who has wronged you? I'm not sure that there is. But what an invitation, what an opportunity to remember that even in our sin, the Lord gave his life for us. He forgives us. He extends that forgiveness before we're even ready to take it, to receive it. The call to love is an invitation to remember that God has first loved us. And so, friends, these words of Jesus, love one another, they are spoken to us today as they were then to a church that sometimes feels fragile, sometimes feels in danger of splitting at the seams. And when we ask, how will the center hold when there's so much socially, culturally, politically that pulls us apart, the answer that Jesus gives is love. Love as he has loved us. Love that, that we imitate in our actions because of what we first received. Love for people that we might not have otherwise chosen to love, but people that God has chosen for us to love. And in a moment, we, we will come to the table as we do every week. And this might be a spiritual practice for you, just to look around at this seemingly random assortment of people that gathers together here with one another as the church of God, week by week by week. And we might be different than one another, different financial situations, different uh, you know, social proclivities, different politics, different needs, different desires. But we're united at least in this one thing, that all of us come to the table open-handed, that all of us receive from the God who loved us first. That is the center that keeps the church from splitting apart, and it will hold because the love of Christ is what holds the church together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. 
As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.